In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again. As we try to understand the difficult but a rather interesting subject this morning of the Reformation. Help us then to see the good side and the bad side of this major event in Christian history. It not only affected the Catholic Church, but it affected the world in every aspect. And therefore, it's important that we understand what this was all about. So we ask your blessing on our efforts, and we just give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name. Oh, I see. I, I think I think so. Today we're going to be talking about, as I just said, one of the most interesting and yet uh, serious movements against the Catholic Church. But it is probably the most important event in Christian history because it affected not only the church and its followers, but it affected the entire world in many ways, as we'll get to see. And I hope I am able to convey it in a proper way so that you see the magnitude of uh, what this is. It is probably the, the most uh, damaging and yet constructive movement of history because it affected so many, many people in many different ways. <clears throat> to give a little background, as we've said now for several meetings, that the time between the end of the Roman Empire in the 6th century AD, all the way up to this time of the Reformation in the early 16th century, so a thousand years, the church has been the only authority that was recognized by virtually everyone. That doesn't mean it was accepted by everyone but at least was recognized uh, because there was so much dissension between the political powers that they didn't rep, uh, recognize or accept each other. Remember, as I've said before, that the people that were sent out by the Roman empires, emperor, or emperors, uh, to various different regions to control them, became more or less the rulers of those countries as the Roman Empire fell apart. There was nothing else there. There was no one else there. And so these people claimed the territories as their own. And in some ways, they claimed it as their own possession and built up 
dynasties uh, and family dynasties, that is, uh, along the lines of um, monarchies and emperors and princes and nobility of all kinds. At the same time, the church was still ruling the majority of the people in a spiritual way, but also in a social way. But as time went on and people became a little more educated, again through the process of the schools that had been built up by the church itself, and education became more common, the people began to realize that the church was kind of controlling a little bit too much. And that was originally out of necessity, but as things often progress, it is like, as I've said in the flyer or the handout there, it is like uh, parents that who control their children well into adulthood without easing up as the child or children mature. That is kind of the same way that we have here. In the 15th century, the people were a lot more educated than they were back in the 5th century. And also the church had a tighter control on everything. Remember that <clears throat> prior to this Reformation, anyone who was a Christian was also a Roman Catholic, except for those uh, few people in the East who split off way back in the 10th century, 11th century, really. Uh, but the majority of the people in Central uh, Europe were considered Roman Catholic. Whether they liked it or not, whether they observed and believed it or not, this is the way society ran. But as people began to start thinking for themselves, the tension began to build up to the point where, as I said, uh, it was like a balloon that had been blown up to full capacity. Uh, there's a couple chairs up here. It was like a balloon that was filled with confetti and blown up to full capacity, and all of a sudden it was burst. You can see, and I was at a party one time where this actually happened, and that confetti just went all over. I'm glad I didn't have to clean it up. <laughs> but it was, it was quite, a, quite a scene. And this is exactly what happened. The monk, Martin Luther, was the one that really set it off. Now, who is Martin Luther? Well, he was a Augustinian monk. Augustinian is a small group of Catholic priests who were not cloistered. Rather, they were uh, what are called mendicant or priests that subsist on uh, handouts and contributions by other people. In other words, beggars. Uh, but he was very well educated. Uh, and he became a very important 
person within a small community uh, of the little town of Wittenberg, Germany. He was very well known, and the abbot of the monastery, uh, about 30 or so friars, uh, had him do many, many things. Now, that was all on the positive side. On the negative side, uh, Martin Luther had a lot of hang-ups, or that's what we would call them today, about his own faith, his own religion, his own understanding of his religion, to the point where he was paranoid about not doing enough penance. He was paranoid in many ways. Uh, I'd like to read just a, a small portion here of this book to give you an idea. He is writing a letter to a friend, and he was complaining about the many things that he had to do, which was taking him away from doing his own penance and saying his prayers, etc., etc. <clears throat> he says, I am a preacher at the monastery. I am a reader during mealtimes, which is a very common thing about mon in, in cloistered monasteries, although this was not cloistered, but it was run the same way. During mealtime, uh, the monks did not speak. In fact, many of these uh, monasteries, they did not speak at all at any time unless the abbot spoke to them. But at mealtime, somebody reads out of um, either the Bible or some other religious book. So he was in charge of doing that. Uh, I am asked daily to preach in the city church. I have to supervise studies. I am a vicar, and that means I am 11 times prior of many schools. Okay. Uh, I am a caretaker of the fish pond at Lightscore. Uh, this is one of the main meal sources for the monks, the fish pond, and he was in charge of that. Okay. I represent the people of Hersburg at the court of Torgo. <clears throat> I lecture on St. Paul. I am assembling a commentary on the Psalms. He was a great writer. As I have already mentioned, uh, the greater part of my time is filled with letter writing. I hardly have any uninterrupted time to say the hourly prayers and celebrate Mass. Besides all of this, there are my own struggles with the flesh, the world, and the devil. See what a lazy man I am? That's, he's being a little facetious there, of course. Uh, but it's the last part, his concern with his own uh, body, his own time that is spent for religious purposes. Martin Luther had a unusual belief that no one was of any value, of any worth in the eyes of God unless they were committed Catholics. And of course, that's not true, uh, but he took it to extremes in many ways. 
The other thing that Martin Luther really had a problem with, and he was right in many ways, was the excesses taken by many of the clergy at that time. We have to go back a little bit, a uh, hundred years or so, <clears throat> to the Renaissance period. The Renaissance period was a, a time beginning around the latter part of the 14th century and into the 15th and early 16th century, particularly in Italy, where art became uh, very fashionable and very important to most people and particularly to the church. Many of the churches that were built in Italy came out of the Renaissance period and the fancier, the glittier, pardon the expression, the better. Um, but where did the money come to build all of this stuff? The people were taxed to the point of hardly being able to live because most of the money was required by the church to build these excessive uh, churches. As I said, there's quite often there was a number of churches in Italy, and they're still there. Uh, one on this corner and down the street in the next block, there's one on another corner. Well, not all of those were built by the church. Many of those were built by no nobility or rich families uh, to make a statement about their family. But many of them were built by the church, and as you may have seen, if you've been there, many of them have extremely uh, ornate walls and altars and statues, etc., etc. Well, the money came from the people, and they were taxed. And then uh, it got to the point where people would be told that if they donated a lot of money to the church, that they would be blessed. They would be uh, welcomed into heaven and all of that. It came down to the idea of indulgences. It even came to the point where they were buying and selling indulgences. Not everybody, but particularly in Germany, that became an acceptable uh, method of raising funds for these churches, the buying and selling of indulgences. Well, a little of that goes a long way, but in Germany, it got to be excessive to the point where people were uh, asked to donate virtually every penny that they had in some cases. And they were used uh, inappropriately. Uh, let's just leave it at that. So Martin Luther's gripe and complaint about indulgences was valid and probably a good thing because even though he complained to the abbot and he complained to a few other people, his ability to get his voice heard uh, did not go very far. Okay. So what did he do? After a very major point or period of frustration, he decided he was going to take action, which was a very bold thing on his part 
because no one up till this time dared take action uh, that would be uh, against the church. So what did he do? But he nailed his uh, list of 95 gripes and complaints, as we would call them, uh, on the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg. Now, this was not an unusual thing. Uh, the door of the cathedral was used like a local bulletin board. And, you know, there weren't any newspapers in those days or uh, television or anything else. And so communication was very slow. And if people wanted to have uh, some kind of an affair, invite the whole community, they would put another notice on the door of the cathedral. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses onto the door of the cathedral. And that was like the bursting of that balloon I mentioned earlier. And hell broke loose from there on. You all have a copy in your handout today of the 95 pieces. I'm not going to go through every one of these because it would take us, uh, you know, quite a while. But there are some that are uh, very good and there are some that are wrong altogether. Most of these were pointing out things that were done on a local level that Martin Luther felt were inappropriate, and he is kind of claiming the wrong side of the story here. But if you go down to number five, the Pope is neither the Pope neither desires nor is able to remit any penalties except those imposed by his own authority or that of the canons. All right, canons meaning canon law. All right, well, that is entirely wrong because it is against the infallibility of the Pope when he is talking about faith and morals. And in this case, Martin Luther is referring to the idea of indulgences. Says, next one, the Pope cannot remit any guilt. Well, that is wrong too, because remember Christ said, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. And whose sins you shall not forgive or retain, will be retained. So, on a broad basis, that is not a correct statement. Then there are many there that are just petty gripes. But there are also some that are entirely valid. If we go over to the next page. If you go to number 35. says, uh, they who teach that contrition is not necessary on the part of those who intend to buy souls out of purgatory or to buy confessional privileges preach unchristian doctrine. Now, that's a double negative here, uh, so you've got to be very careful. Okay? 
got uh, and that is partly true with many of these. If you have a double negative, it generally comes out to be a positive. All right, go down to uh, thirty-seven. Any true Christian, all right, true or serious or committed Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church. And this is granted him by God, even without indulgences, indulgence letters. Now, what he's talking about here, letters, is that the whole idea of buying and selling indulgences went to the point of uh, having, after the printing press was developed a hundred years before, uh, or almost a hundred years, uh, having fancy certificates printed like, uh, and it would say something, oh, I didn't bring, I have one at home. Uh, that will say something like, uh, to John Jones here, who donated a thousand dollars to the church, he will go straight to heaven. Or, or, or words to that effect, you know. Um, so the letters got to be, uh, the most cherished piece of document here, partly because it came off of the printing press and was one of the first, uh, and partly because it assured, or at least it says, it assured the person of going straight to heaven regardless of what he did. Well, we all know that that's entirely wrong. Nevertheless, this is 38, nevertheless, papal remission and blessing are by no means to be disregarded. Well, that's true. For they are, as I have said in thesis number six, the proclamation of divine remission. All right, but there are certain conditions. What he's talking about is plenary or partial um, indulgences. And we still have those, but under very strict conditions. Uh, go down to 41. Papal indulgences must be preached with caution. Amen. Lest people erroneously think that they are preferable to other good works of love. Right. Very much so. Uh, go up to the, the one above. A Christian who is truly contrite, meaning sorry for his sins, seeks and loves to pay penalties for his sins. The bounty of indulgences, however, relaxes penalties and causes men to hate them. At least it furnishes occasion for hating them. Well, that is so convoluted that it's pretty hard to understand what the heck he's talking about. Uh, now, of course, you've got to remember that this was written 500 years or more ago in German and uh, actually, it was not. It was written in Latin to begin with. Remember, most of Martin Luther's works were in Latin. It wasn't until after the revolution, the Reformation took place and became widespread did he convert his writings to German. Right. So there are a number of positive statements here because much of his works were good. I think, and I'm not going to go, to go into any more of this, you can 
read these at home. But keep in mind that he uses a lot of double negative and convoluted wording. So you've got to be very careful when you read these things. But they're interesting, but after a while they're a little boring too. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, it's possible that people looked at these, what we would call convoluted ways of, of speaking, uh, as normal. You're right, I think that's what you mean. Isn't it? Yes, uh, and that's possible. But nevertheless, it was damaging in most ways to the church, and it was a confrontation to the church as well. Now, when this started getting out, and of course, Wittenberg still is a rather small town, although it has a magnificent church there that you would think would be uh, welcomed in any huge uh, metropolis. Uh, but once the word got out that Martin Luther uh, dared, or somebody dared, to disobey the church or confront the church with so many accusations, um, they stopped to think, well, if he can get away with it, why can't I? Or why can't we? And so the dam broke. And this went far and wide in no time. Now, the church originally thought, oh, this is just one of those complainers uh, up in Germany. We're not going to do much about it. They didn't realize the impact um, and the repercussions that this would involve. So they didn't really do anything about it for a while. But at the same time, and we'll go into this next week, at the same time, the church realized that they had to make some changes, that they couldn't continue to control society as it was, or as they had been doing. And they were beginning to think about making changes. Unfortunately, uh, because of communication and travel being so extremely slow in those days, uh, the word didn't get out, and nothing happened for uh, at least 12 years after this particular event, uh, and that's when the convocation uh, or the calling of an ecumenical council together uh, was sent out. And that didn't happen until 1545. And again, we'll talk about that next week. These time periods overlap, but I think I have to talk about the Reformation first, and then we'll talk about what is often referred to as the Counter-Reformation, but really it's better known as the Ecumenical Council of Trent. All right.
we'll talk about that next week. Let's, let's go on here. Almost immediately, excuse me. Well, they came about by the blessings that the church bestowed on people who donated to make these beautiful churches. Uh-huh. Well, I, I, I really don't know. Uh, I don't think that there's a, a specific time period. It's something that sort of evolved over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, no, I, I can't give you any date or any specifics on how they started. No. Yes? Well, that's an important point. She said, what is going on in the church at this time? Uh, daily Mass, yes. But Mass was only really considered as being a weekly thing, all right? Daily Mass was not encouraged, uh, not the, that it was forbidden anyways. The priests themselves offered Mass, um, but the Mass was not uh, uniform in its structure or formality uh, at this time. And like I pointed out, I think, in uh, the handout today, you might wonder why I haven't talked more about the Mass and the sacraments and the uh, liturgies and so forth. And that is because up through this period of time, there wasn't anything that was formalized by the church to give instruction as to what the Mass should totally contain, with the exception of the consecration of the bread and wine and the communion. But as far as the number of prayers, uh, the kind of prayers, or where they came from, that was generally up to the local bishop. But Mass, yes, as I just read here from the book, Martin Luther said Mass uh, almost on a daily basis. It was not required on a daily basis uh, at that time. And communion was only in the form of the bread, not the wine. It was felt that the common people were not worthy enough to drink the wine. And that became something that was uh, on again, off again. Yes? Oh, yes. Yeah. They had confessions. They had all the sacraments that we have. They came up over a period of time, but not in a uniform way. And I'll explain more of that next week because the Council of Trent changed all of that. Um, yes, the, the Council of Trent changed a number of things, and we'll get into that subject uh, next week. Now, the Council of Trent and the Reformation overlap in time. 
but in order to better understand, we have to take each of the subjects separately. Okay. So what is going on here now when the people began to realize that they could not only uh, confront the church or question the church, but disobey the church, that opened up uh, the door uh, to society and really let the evil one come in. Not only did it change the relationship between the common people and the church, but it changed relationships between society in general on a number of topics. Uh, society was never the same after this period of time, the early 16th century. And we'll get into those uh, subjects. Uh, well, in fact, I'll, I'll read towards the end of this meeting today something that happened particularly in Amsterdam. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. But I want to give you some ideas of the magnitude that was involved here. They started to question virtually everything that the church held sacred. Uh, I want to read just a small portion of this here. It says, sins, it's, it's headed up by the caption, sins, reform, and the importance of confession. Says, at the same time, long-standing, pervasive dissatisfactions and problems are churning in Christendom. That is, the people are beginning to voice what was in their minds and hearts for a long time. Not every Christian practiced the faith, faith with enthusiasm. Far from it. And probably few people practice the virtues central to Christian life consistently or uniformly. The basic problem has long remained the same. Indeed, for centuries, many holy men and women have seen it clearly. Despite all of these devotional practices, there is a disconnect between what the church teaches and the way many Christian people live. And that's true today as well. Okay. Alongside enthusiastic expressions of Christian faith in the early 16th century, sins are everywhere, from the top of the church's hierarchy on down through the laity, popes, the cardinals, and those who advise them in Rome, and the bishops, who are frequently absent from their dioceses. They are supposed to, the dioceses that they are supposed to oversee, often live ostentatiously wealthy, worldly lives contrary to the biblical virtues of poverty and humility. So you can see what is causing, the people are seeing this, and they're saying the church is telling us to live virtuous lives, but yet many of the people that are running the church are not doing that. In fact, the uh, gospel today, or today's mass, said essentially the same thing. 
the Pharisees were writing all of these rules and regulations uh, for the people, but not observing them themselves. So history doesn't change much. In Europe as a whole, every few, very few Christians ever see the Pope or a Cardinal, while the bishops are hardly common figures in most people's daily lives. Certainly not in Wittenberg, but parish clergy and the members of religious orders are. They're everywhere. Remember, monasteries were a very important part, um, not only of education, but they drew other uh, people to them. Some parish priests keep concubines despite their vows of celibacy, and most of them, especially in rural areas, lack strong theological or pastoral training. A more common source of criticism is the clergy's greediness manifested in tithes, rents, fees for services, and indulgences. Members of the laity also resent them, that is the clergy, uh, for taking advantage of their clerical privileges, such as exemptions from most taxes and the right to be tried for criminal accusations only, but only in church courts. Lay people often complain about the members of religious orders for the same reason. Anti-clericalism of this sort is common in the early 15th or 16th century, as it has been for a very long time. And most members of the laity are hardly beyond reproach, reproach, whether merchants who seek profits at the expense of the common good, families whose members stroke violent feuds for years on end, or peasant villagers who uh, superstitiously think that the church is a source of holy magic, they can exploit to their own advantage. Despite abundant evidence that Christians are religiously engaged, an elusive goal remains the same as it has been for generations. The reform of the church by exhorting all clergy and laity to live better Christian lives in imitation of Christ. All of this old hat, all of this is old hat to these people. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux said it in the 12th century. Saint Catherine of Siena in the 14th century and countless others besides. In his 15th century bestseller, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis exhorted Christians to earnestly desire to advance in virtue, love, discipline, dwell in repentance, show prompt obedience, exercise self-control, and patiently bear all the trials for the love of Christ. But the people did not follow that. By the early 16th century, Christian humanists, led by Erasmus, who was a Catholic priest, above all in Northern Europe, are starting to put their own twist on this long-standing impulse by emphasizing reform through erudition and education. 
Latin Christendom in the 15th uh, in 1517 is a paradoxical picture of pervasive piety and widespread human sinfulness. No great secret among those who care about the faith and the church and therefore want things to improve. So you can see the tension has built up. People recognize that they are being asked to do one thing but by those who are not doing that very same thing. And so the dam has now broken. Not only in religious affairs, but in all civil affairs as well. And you have pandemonium throughout Germany, and it, it spreads uh, to all areas. But right up through from Rome all the way up through uh, Central Europe, this attack not only on the church, but on civil authorities against each other or the common people against uh, civil authorities. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, and this book goes into a lot of detail in, in parts, but it is, it's an easy book to read. The only thing is, if you buy it, um, you have to read it twice. And I've been through it now, I'm on my third time. Uh, because you get more out of it every time you read it. Um, and, and it's really interesting. Uh, the second time I read it, I thought, gee, I didn't read that the last time. Uh, and uh, I begin to see the effect. You're so amazed by some of the things it says that the first time you're overwhelmed by the idea of these new ideas coming out. When you go back and read it again, you pick up all the little fine points as to why. So I, I highly recommend it because I came away after reading this twice to appreciate my faith much more. All right. If you look at the very bottom line of this handout, there it is. Facebook. Yes. 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 Everybody recognized that there were problems within the church, but nobody dared do anything about it uh, because the church had such, such a stronghold on people. Now, this was not true with all churches in all places. You had some very, very holy saints, Saint Teresa of Avila, as I mentioned before, Saint Catherine of Siena, uh, Saint Ignatius Loyola. Today is a feast of Saint Ignatius of Antioch, uh, different time periods and different locations. All right. 
So you had a number of very holy people working to improve the church. And St. Teresa of Avila uh, was a very gutsy lady and took on the Pope uh, because even the Popes uh, were not uh, totally lily white uh, when they should be. Uh, and so the, and St. Catherine of Siena took on the popes as well and brought, was very instrumental in bringing the popes back from Avignon, uh, but that was in the early 15th century. Okay. Uh, so you had a number of problems, but it opened the door in many ways to others. What had happened is that in northern Germany uh, and going all the way up into the Baltic states, uh, countries, Lutheranism began to spread and take root. Uh, in southern Germany, Italy, Spain, and France remain pretty much Catholic with a few exceptions here and there. Switzerland was a mixture of virtually everything. And Switzerland became the hotbed of Protestantism, particularly in Geneva. That became the center of Calvinism. Uh, Geneva did. And uh, it actually drove out all the Catholics uh, Catholicism was banned and openly persecuted by many of the nobility in central Germany and in the north. Uh, it established many wars, not only of religion, but in all kinds of uh, economics, industry, um, society, etc., etc. Uh, it was a mixed bag of things that took place. You had uh, the Hundred Years' War was what this writer calls more wars of more than religion. Um, the Thirty Years' War, the Peasants' War, those were all sparked by religious beliefs, but also in order to recognize uh, or have their rights recognized uh, for civil authority to be separated. The outcome of the Reformation was eventually the idea of separating religion from all other societies uh, and beliefs, etc., etc., so that freedom of religion as one would wish to uh, participate in or not participate in was to be left up to the individual. This did not happen uniformly. Uh, France, Spain, southern Italy uh, all remained staunch Catholics controlled again by the church. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, there were, and 
they were not affected in, in many ways. The Jewish people were sort of ignored, right? Except in Holland and in northern Spain. All right. But no, there weren't enough Jews to really create any kind of backlash of any kind. No. They were sort of ignored. And that was somewhat acceptable. Yes. Um, well, that's an interesting point. The question is, did Martin Luther set up all the churches? No, he didn't. In fact, he was aghast at what took place from his original intent. His original intent was good, but it was only meant for the local bishop. However, as I've said, uh, it opened the door to everybody who felt that if he can do it, I can do it, and I'm going to disobey the church and do things my way. Yes, yes, but it took quite a while. It was almost uh, 20 years or so before he was formally excommunicated. Uh, the poor guy was... Uh, well... He suffered a great deal of persecution, personal persecution, uh, not so much by the church, uh, but from many, many authorities. But he also was looked upon as a hero as well, uh, a real paradox in a way. Uh, and his form of religion was to straighten out Catholicism and go from there. But what happened was, that people twisted a lot of what he said and decided that they were going to make little changes here and little changes there. I was trying to find a particular passage in the book, but I couldn't come across it quickly, where it talked about how they took the Mass and started to question the whole idea of transubstantiation, the whole idea of God's presence within the Eucharist. Uh, and in most cases, they decided, they, meaning the, the people who got together uh, in authority, and I can't put a specific title on them because it was a little of everybody, uh, decided that uh, this was not a true understanding or interpretation of Scripture. The one thing that Martin Luther did um, promote was the idea that we didn't need the Pope. We didn't need outside interference of people telling us what to believe or how to believe. His idea that Scripture alone, the Bible alone, was sufficient to guide us. The only... Uh, fallacy about that is that they took the Bible and they changed it to fit their own interpretation and meaning. Uh, one of them, the major one, was the idea of Christ's presence in the Eucharist and the idea of Christ's presence
being converted or being present when the bread was converted into the body and blood of Christ. That is totally wrong in the eyes of Martin Luther. Uh, he also took a, uh, took to mean that the sacrament of confession or reconciliation as we call it today was not necessary because the individual could go directly to God. Why should we go to a priest? And yet uh, there are so many things that they changed, they meaning the followers of Martin Luther more than he himself uh, changed that are totally uh, against what the Bible does say. Uh, Christ has told us uh, that my flesh, uh, I mean, this is my true flesh and this is my true blood. Unless you eat the blood or eat the bread or the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ, you do not have life in you. And Martin Luther said, no, no, that's wrong, wrong interpretation, or his people did. So what they did was, yeah, they said Bible, the Bible was the sole source of faith. Uh, but then they changed it all to meet their own ideas and demands. Uh, the church stands on three major pillars. Faith is built on not only the Bible, but also tradition and the magisterium, that is the teaching responsibility of the church. And that comes from people who are appointed to and study the church doctrines, not only the Bible, but all of the doctrines that have come out from the Bible and interpret them in a uniform way for all of the people to believe. And that is where we get canon law. Remember, we've talked about that in previous sessions. Canon law is the basis of our belief. It is a listing, and that is the word, what the word canon means, listing uh, of the major points of our belief. No other Christian or no other faith that I'm aware of has such a central creed that is documented right to the point of details. Yes. At first, he was aghast at what he had done. But then he felt, well, why shouldn't I go along too? And he was looked upon as a hero and treated as such. Uh, unfortunately, of course, that didn't last very long. I want to read here what happened. Because many of the countries got into a persecution situation where they were persecuting people who uh, left the Catholic Church or they were persecuting people who remained in the church. It depends on what the nobility uh, believed and thought and felt was right for them. There was very little searching of minds and hearts to find out what God wanted. This whole book is amazing 
when you read it and there is very, very little uh, that indicates people were searching for the mind and the heart of God in order to follow God's law. It was all what they wanted, what they felt was right for them. And the heck with what God wanted. Um, that's one of the things that I came away with. Um, we have been taught, and the church teaches, that whenever we make a serious decision, particularly in a change in lifestyle or a change in location, or a major change that's going to affect our lives, we should take it into prayer and ask God to help us make the right decision in accordance with his will. And yet, how many, I don't want any hands raised, but how many of you people really do that now? Okay. And that is so important, that you seek the mind and the heart of God for you in any particular matters. But throughout this book, there is virtually no mention of that whatsoever, which is sad in a way. Because certain places became more friendly to uh, Catholics, you had a number of Catholics that were being persecuted in other areas moved to that area. Certain places were more friendly towards uh, Martin Luther and his beliefs, and so people who were being persecuted in other areas would move to that area. You had a great deal of movement throughout the Central Europe at this time. Uh, and I want to read just one of these because I find it rather interesting. It says, the process of managing religion in order to address the problems of the Reformation era begins in an unlikely place in a strange little republic at war with Europe's most powerful monarchy from which it has just declared its independence. And this is Holland. Holland was a uh, part of the Spanish Empire and had just, as it says here, just declared its independence and was still at war in a way. But it was friendly to all faiths. And therefore, people who were being persecuted in other areas uh, drove uh, to Holland, or actually migrated to Holland. So at a time when Europe's monarchs are trying to consolidate and centralize their power, the Dutch Republic emphasizes local privileges and provinces. The new country has only around a million inhabitants and a few and very few natural resources. Large stretches of its territory underwater are subject to flooding. It has just rebelled against Spain, with whom it remains at war. Furthermore, it is home to multiple religious groups at a time when the Reformation has made religion an unprecedented problem. This isn't the sort of place that looks poised to change Western history. Yet, that's exactly what happens. 
religious freedom is an issue from the very beginning uh, of the United Provinces of the Netherlands, according to the Union of Utrecht, which is dated in 1579. The Dutch Republic's most important founding document, remember it had been the province of Spain. Each province is allowed to address religion as it sees fit without interference from the other provinces, so long as each person shall be permitted to remain free in his religion and that no one shall be permitted to be investigated or persecuted for reasons of religion. Now that changed in a little very short order. The Union of Utrecht contrasts sharply with the Union of Arras, which mandates Catholicism as the established religion of the southern provinces of the low, crun low countries. Low countries meaning Belgium uh, uh, and the southern part of Denmark. The only exception to the religious policy proclaimed by the Union of Utrecht is that it prohibits the re-establishment or the restoration of Catholicism by force. Okay. And that was happening in many of the other countries. Okay. Now, as I've said before, God does not want to be loved by force. He wants to be freely loved. Shortly thereafter, in 1581, amid the ongoing strife of the war with Spain, Holland officially outlaws Catholic worship altogether. So it didn't last long. But because the Union of Iris and Utrecht diverged so sharply, more than a hundred thousand Protestant religions, religious refugees, pushed by fear of persecution and lured by the prospect of religious freedom, moved from the southern to the northern provinces in the years that followed. Immigrants come from elsewhere in Europe also, including many Lutherans uh, from northern Germany and Scandinavia. The economic impact on the cities in Holland, the leading province in the Dutch Republic, is immediate and dramatic. By the 1590s, Leiden, where the public's first university is established in 1575, becomes one of the leading centers for textile production in all of Europe. In the 17th century, Holland cities newly teeming with immigrants, established niches to capitalize on the sudden, suddenly booming Dutch economy. One such city, Gouda, produces huge quantities of cheap clay pipes for smoking tobacco, a new world import cultivated intensively in Belderland, east of Holland. Delft becomes known for its ceramics, especially the signature blue-on-white designs inspired by Chinese poetry that Dutch merchants bring back to Holland. Holland's biggest urban, urban economic success is Amsterdam. 
in the mid-1580s as part of the back-and-forth conflicts of the ongoing war, the city benefits from the naval blockade of Antwerp, many of whose merchants relocate to Amsterdam. And within a decade, Amsterdam is on its way to replacing Antwerp as Northern Europe's leading center of commerce. I won't go on because it's just much more of the same. But it gives you a little bit of idea of how, what Martin Luther did unintentionally has started not only uh, a religious rebellion, but a whole new idea of mobility and economics that has benefited Europe. You might say that this time period was the beginning of a whole new society in Western Europe, Eastern Europe as well, but mostly in Western Europe. And, of course, we're talking about 16th century, so the New World, America, now was also benefiting and bringing in new ideas. But in America, the thing that was important was they took religious freedom very strictly and very important. So I think that uh, you, you got pretty much the idea of what the Protestant Reformation was all about. Yes? So what do you think would have happened had there not been a Reformation? Uh, interesting point. The question is, what do I think would happen if there had not been a Martin Luther in this case? I think it would have happened anyways, sooner or later. The pressure on society was developing to the point where if Martin Luther hadn't done this, it would have happened sooner or later. Yeah. And maybe not with exactly the same results, uh, but probably close to it. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Mike. Is that due to basically education? Because people were educated, now they're thinking more. Yes. Education had a great deal to do, to do with that. Yes, as you just said. That's thinking outside the box, thinking beyond. Why should we believe and follow the church when, in many cases, the leaders of the church were not following their own rules? Yeah. So you had, it was really a backlash against the church, uh, but it extended far beyond that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, as I said in, uh, in in the beginning, they were just saying, "Oh, ho hum," uh, you know, another complainant. Um, but they did begin to take it seriously because there were a number of good, reliable, and sincere and honest uh, bishops and cardinals at that time as well. And we'll get into more of that next week. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, during the Reformation, what was happening in the Muslim world at this time? 
I'm sorry? The Muslim world. The Muslim world. Uh, they were being driven out of Spain. Yeah. The Moors uh, and Spain were in a heated battle uh, against Muslims. And most of them were expelled from Spain along with the Jews. Okay. There weren't that many Jews there, but they were a rather large number considering uh, the total population. Uh, uh, but that was not a major, major problem for the rest of the world, but it was major for Spain. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's a good point. Uh, Connie brought up that in America, particularly South America, that is when Our Lady uh, appeared to Juan Diego uh, in uh, 1521. Yeah, okay. Um, and what happened, of course, <coughs> Our Lady of Guadalupe is a very, very interesting subject. A year or two ago, I showed a video on uh, that, which I think was very enlightening to many people. You probably all know the story of Juan Diego, uh, the poor peasant fellow who the Blessed Virgin appeared to him and told him to go to the bishop and tell the bishop that she wanted the church built on a given uh, desolated hill outside of Mexico City. And of course, Juan Diego said in his mind and heart, who am I to go and tell the bishop what to do? But he felt compelled and he did go. Um, and to make a long story short, after several uh, apparitions and finally the, the bishop uh, became curious and he said, all right, he needed a sign from uh, the lady uh, that this was authentic. So on one winter day, uh, even though it doesn't get real cold in Mexico, it was a cold day, and the lady appeared to him and said, go to the bishop again and tell him again that she wants uh, a church built on that hill. And so the bishop said, well, what is your sign? And when he opened his mantilla, a bunch of roses fell out which was, of course, not possible in winter. And so the bishop took that as a, uh, a sign of approval. And from there on, you know, as they say, our history would tell the rest of it. The thing is that on that mantilla, which is still available, and even though it was made out of uh, rough fibers, uh, it is still available. It does have a lot of markings that were meaningful to the people of the, the Aztec people of that time because it had all the signs of the zodiac embedded into it and a number of other signs which drew the uh, people who were uh, of no particular religion um, into accepting Our Lady as Queen of the Americas. And that is the way she is looked upon today. 
very important. So if you have an opportunity to see the video, uh, and we might do that at the end of, of this session. One thing I want you to think about is not only on the subject of the Reformation, but on any subject that we've talked about today. If I haven't answered your question, or if you have a question that you haven't voiced and would like an answer, at the last in the last meeting, it's going to be a sort of a free-for-all. And I will ask you questions, but and this is not a uh, impromptu test or anything, but I want to see what you have learned. But if there are questions that you have in your mind and heart would like an answer, if you write them out, and we will go through and uh, try to answer them. Okay. So think about it between now and then. You have uh, four more meetings after today. Yes, Julie? Well, the Jesuits were very instrumental in doing a great deal of missionary work. They are also known as great educators, and so they did a lot of. They made a lot of contributions uh, to education at that time, which we've mentioned earlier was sort of uh, the ammunition, you might say, that caused people to start thinking on their own. So. Uh, that's really the essence of the uh, fame and fortune of the, the Jesuits. All right. But, again, if you have any questions, now, I'm going to make one um, requirement that you type out your question. Right. You type out your question. I've had, I've tried this before, and you'd be surprised how people will scribble a few words on a, a piece of paper and then expect me to read it. Uh, no. It must be typed out. Uh, you don't have to sign it. Uh, but it's, if it is a legitimate question, we will try to get an answer. All right. So that will be on the last meeting um, that we'll have, which is the week before Thanksgiving. Not Thanksgiving, but the week before. All right. Yes, ma'am. Uh, we don't know exactly for sure, but he was uh, born around 1480. So that would have made him around 37. All right. There's no firm records, which is surprising in a way, uh, because the church even had baptismal records at that time. But for some reason or other, I couldn't find out exactly. But the uh, most indications are he was born around the year 1480. So that would have made him 37 at the time of uh, this incident of the 95 Theses. Okay. Any other questions? Did you get something out of this? Yes. Uh, yes. It's important to understand that the Reformation had both good and bad points.
points. It was the turning point for uh, religious sincerity as well as so open the door for society to start doing things on its own and not expecting to wait for the church to give its approval uh, or help. Did you have a question? Yes. Yes. Now, that is, you know, as I said before, it is often referred to as the Counter-Reformation. Its primary purpose was to not only put down what Martin Luther, what Martin Luther was trying to promote, <clears throat> and I don't mean it was trying to squash him altogether. It was trying to correct the things that he was putting out. Like I said, on these 95 theses, most of them are wrong. So it's a way to correct that. But in doing so, the <coughs> Council of Trent was probably the most important change in all of Catholicism up to that time. And it is the way that we lived, we Catholics lived, <coughs> excuse me, in connection with our faith for 400 years up until Vatican II. And so I'll go into a fair amount of detail on the changes that were made because, as I said before, the Mass, except for the consecration and the communion, was sort of left up to the local bishops as to what the prayers and songs and so forth surrounding it were. That changed with the Council of Trent and the lectionary that all masses uh, were around the world was developed. It also got into uh, the official catechism. It uh, got into defining the sacraments, not only what they meant, but how they were to be administered, etc. So. There's a great deal of detail uh, that we'll talk about next week, and hopefully it will answer many of your questions. And that's why uh, hold off in typing out your question that you're going to have me answer at the end, because we might answer a lot of those next week. Great. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the sense of uh, humility and humor um, because we sure need humor at this particular time. So thank you. Uh, we ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forth to try to put all of this together in the proper perspective to understand and help us then to look forward to uh, the other side of the coin, so to speak, tomorrow uh, or next week. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.